0: Some years, when Easter rolls around, we just sort of press on with our normal Sunday morning sermon series, and we uh, give attention and make application to the resurrection of Jesus. But this morning, we're going to take a break. We've been working through the Gospel of John. We're going to take a break from John, and we're going to spend one morning looking at 1 Corinthians 15, in particular, verse 1 down to verse 8. And we're just going to talk about very basic but very important Foundational truths when we think about Easter and we think about Good Friday and we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're just going to begin by reading. If you would follow along as I read, this is the Word of God from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we have gathered together to celebrate the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Father, you have filled our hearts with hope. And as we look at this scripture this morning, and we think about these basic, life-changing truths, Father, we pray that the same spirit that inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words would press them home to our heart this morning. And we pray in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. You probably heard news this morning. There was a bombing on the other side of the world as Christians were gathering together to worship, to celebrate Easter. I want to tell you another story about a different bombing. This is September 1963, Birmingham, Alabama. Several members of the KKK in the early morning hours, snuck into the basement of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Accounts differ. No one really knows. I I read a number of of different totals, but uh, the most common number seems to be 22. 22 sticks of dynamite they took with them into the basement of that church in the early morning hours. They set the dynamite up, and they left. And that morning, people began to show up at the 16th Street Baptist Church, as they always did, Uh, In particular, down in the basement, children were gathering for Sunday school. And as they were gathering, the phone rang. I believe it was in the choir room. They answered the phone. The voice on the phone said, one minute. And within a minute, before a minute had passed, the dynamite exploded. And it was a horrific, horrific attack. There were, at the moment the bomb went off, 26 children in the basement, 22 Of them survived with injury, four died. Addie Mae Collins, who was on the top left, and we'll talk about her in a minute, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley. You can imagine the pain for that congregation. You can imagine the pain for our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world as they woke up to something similar and experienced something similar this morning. You can imagine the pain not just for a church family, but for a family And I want to tell you just an interesting story about Addie Mae Collins. Her family obviously uh, had a funeral. They buried her in the Greenwood Cemetery in Birmingham. And for over 30 years, her family would go back and visit her grave. They would take flowers. They would pay their respects. They would go just to think and to reflect and to remember. And they did this for over 30 years. And then in the late 90s, the family was getting ready to move across country, and they wanted to take Addie with them. They didn't want to leave her behind, so to speak. And so they paid somebody to dig up her remains, and they were going to move her remains where the family was going. Something interesting happened when they started digging. They didn't find her. She wasn't there. I, I don't mean that they dug down, they found the casket, they opened it up, and she wasn't in there. I mean, they dug down, and there was no casket. No one was there. You can imagine a family who had gone through what they had gone through and had the memories that they had and the experiences they had experienced, who then wants to move their family member across country only to find she's not there. I mean, they were distraught, and they had to meet with, with people at the cemetery. And so they had a meeting, and the folks at the cemetery out of the gate said, you probably dug in the wrong spot. Let's check the map. Let's go back to the records and see where we buried her. And so they got the records out, and they went back. They checked, checked the map. They went back, and they said, no, that's, that's the spot we have written down. And so at the next meeting, they sat down with the family, and they said something like this. Someone probably stole the body, to which the family said, and the casket? You know, and for 30 years, we've been coming to this spot? As soon as the service was over, we've been coming right here. We never saw the dirt disturbed. We never saw a hole in the ground. We never, you know, we never noticed anything. That doesn't seem very likely. And so that didn't really float. And so you can feel the pain of the cemetery officials. They really don't know what to do or what to say. And what they ended up saying in the end is, we probably put the tombstone in the wrong spot. We probably put the grave marker in the wrong location. She's here somewhere, of course. We know that. We were here at the funeral. But we probably just put the marker in the wrong spot. We can't really just go around digging up everything, and we're sorry. You know, what's interesting is the cemetery met with that family, family of Addie Mae Collins. Not once in all of the accounts that I read did the cemetery suggest the possibility that maybe Addie Mae Collins was alive. No one suggested it. That's because it would be preposterous to suggest it, right? You say to this family, well, maybe she came back from the dead. The family would look at you and say, we were there at the 16th Street Baptist Church in September of 1963 when the dynamite went off. We saw her remains. She is not alive. And yet that's exactly what the first Christian said about Jesus when his body turned up missing. Where did he go? What could have happened? His closest friends, his earliest followers, insisted that he was alive. And it was a preposterous story. It was as preposterous then as it would have been for the cemetery to say this to the family of Addie Mae Collins in the late 90s. No one believed them. And people had all sorts of explanations about what might have happened. One of the earliest theories, explanations was that the women just went to the wrong spot now i'm going to tread lightly here and i'm going to describe to you not my view okay do not throw anything at me do not get up and leave i'm just going to describe to you what people are really suggesting here when they say this okay you know women i mean what do you expect from a bunch of old women It was early in the morning. They didn't know where they were going. Did you see how hard they were crying? Do you know how emotional women are? They cry about everything. Just boo-hoo, can't even see through their tears. They were boo-hooing at the cross. They were boo-hooing when they buried him. They were boo-hooing when they went out Sunday morning. They were just crying. They didn't know where to go. And you know women, they're all directionally challenged. They can't go east from west or north from south. They just went to the wrong spot. Now, I know and you know that, on the one hand, that's incredibly demeaning towards women to just say, you know, a bunch of women. But even if you accept that, don't you think that directionally gifted Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who actually put Jesus in the ground, if people started saying, he's alive, he's gone, it's empty, that those guys would have probably spoke up and said, no, you're in the wrong spot, he's here. And if that happens, the whole story goes away. Nobody's talking about resurrection. So it's not very likely. Another explanation is that somebody, probably the disciples, stole the body and made up a lie. Right? They wanted Jesus to be alive so badly that they just sort of wink wink made it happen. We're going to sneak out there, we're going to steal the body, and then we're going to tell everybody he's alive. That's not very likely. On the one hand, you had a bunch of Roman guards there, right? These Roman guards were guarding the tomb. Their career and their lives were on the line. Fail at this mission, you could be put to death yourself. Putting aside the fact that the guards had a lot at stake, I just want you to think what the disciples had at stake. I understand that people will do a lot of crazy things and tell a lot of lies to make a buck. And some people sort of suggest this from time to time, like there was something in it for them. They're the ones who ended up with all the power and the authority in the early church. And so they did this just for their own advantage. But I just need you to understand, these guys were not living in mansions and they were not flying around in Gulf Streams. These guys had nooses around their neck and swords to their throat and even... When they faced death, they insisted, He's alive. I've seen him. I touched him. I talked to him. One of the men in the early service is involved in prison ministry, Kairos prison ministry. He came up to me after the service. He said, You know, I was talking with a prisoner on multiple occasions. He said it's happened more than once. Talking with a prisoner down at the Wallace unit, and I've asked these men, I've looked them in the eye, and I've asked them, Why do you believe that Jesus is alive? And he said, multiple people incarcerated for committing crimes have looked back and said, anyone will say anything for a buck. But when your neck's on the line, the truth comes out. These guys went to their deaths, some of them very painful, very humiliating, not backing off this story one bit. You heard the same thing from a guy named Chuck Colson. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was involved in the Watergate scandal. He went to prison for that. Chuck Colson said, you know why I believe Jesus is alive? Here's why I believe he's alive. There were 12 of us that knew about the Watergate scandal. We couldn't keep the lie a lie for three weeks, and we all folded. We were all found out. You're telling me that dozens and dozens and hundreds of people were in on this lie and the truth never got out? I'm not buying it. He's alive. So there's all sorts of explanations. We could go through other theories of objecting to this idea that Jesus rose from the dead. I could refute these things. I want you to understand, there is good historical reason, good historical evidence. When you look at this story of Jesus' resurrection, to walk away and to say, it makes the most sense to say that he rose from the dead. It just makes logical sense. We can refute all the theories and all the objections, but I also want you to understand at the end of the day, we don't believe this because it's been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. We accept it by faith. You weren't there to see it, I wasn't there to see it. We're relying on the testimony of other people. We're trying to piece the the pieces together as best we can, but at the end of all of it, we accept this by faith. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, I preached this message to you, and you received it. You Corinthians weren't there to see these things happening. You're relying on my testimony. You're believing what I'm telling you. And that's the same position we find ourselves in. Hearing about Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection and accepting it, receiving it by faith. And the very simple question I want us to walk through this morning is, what is it that we believe? When Paul says, I've delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, and you've accepted it by faith, what is it that we actually believe about Jesus? And I just want to point out four simple words. Think of them as like anchor words, right? Just tying down our faith to something solid. Here's what we believe about Jesus. Number one Jesus died. Jesus died. That's verse 3. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died. We believe that Jesus died. It's interesting to me around Easter or Christmas or any big sort of religious holiday, you see the History Channel come out with all these documentaries and They put on all these experts. And one of the things that you may see them debate from time to time is who was really responsible for Jesus' death. And you may have some people that say, you know, it it was really Judas. He was in the inner circle. He betrayed Jesus. He gave them the opportunity, right time, right place. We're going to pin this on Judas. You've got another group of people that say, no, 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 I don't think you can really blame Judas. Really, it's the Jewish authorities. They were the ones really driving this whole thing. They're the ones who paid Judas. They're the ones who backed Pilate into a corner. And you've got another camp over here that says, you know, Buck stops at the top. We're going to pin it on Pilate. He could have stopped the whole thing. He was the one that had to give the okay. It's really his fault. I think it's fascinating in 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul's talking about Jesus dying, he doesn't blame Judas. He doesn't blame the Jews and he doesn't blame Pilate. He blames us. Verse 3 Christ died for our sins. We get the blame. And at the same time we take the blame, God gets the credit. Both of those are true. Jesus died. We take the blame. It was for our sins, but he also died in accordance with the scriptures, meaning this was something God had promised. This is something God had decided. This is something God had foretold. He died for our sins. We get the blame, but God gets the credit. He died in accordance with the scriptures. You can see this all the way through the Old Testament. You can see it right out of the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they deserved to be killed instantly. And instead of Adam and Eve dying, an animal dies, and Adam and Eve, yes, they have to walk out of Eden, but they walk out clothed because an animal died for them. You can see it in the Passover when the people are about to leave Egypt, and God is calling in the sin debt of all of the people in Egypt, and he says the firstborn are going to die, but the firstborn of the Hebrews lives because the Passover lamb dies in their place. You can see it on the Day of Atonement, this once-a-year sacrifice, this once-a-year ceremony where the people would gather together and they would lay their hands, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of this animal and confess the sins of the people, and the animal would die so that the people could live. You can see it in Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 53 where we read about the servant of the Lord who would be crushed for the iniquities of God's people. Jesus died for our sins and he died in accordance with the scriptures we take the blame and god gets the credit secondly he was buried he was buried this is right in verse 4 he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried we recently talked about a, an ancient false teaching known as docetism and the docetist had an interesting theory about jesus the docetist said jesus was God pretending to be man. He wasn't God become man. He was God pretending to be man. It was just sort of all a a big charade. It's like a, a costume party. God acting like he was human. When he was tempted, he wasn't really tempted. He just looked like that. When he suffered, he didn't really suffer. It just sort of, he went through the motions and it looked like that was happening. And when he died, he didn't really die. It just sort of looked like that's what was going on. And we saw in the Gospel of John, that's crazy talk. That's heretical talk. John says the eternal creating word became flesh, and he lived among us. He didn't just pretend to be human. He became human. John says in chapter 4, as Jesus is meeting with the woman at this well, he's weary, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. That wasn't just pretend. That wasn't just make-believe. That was real. And Paul says it right here. This was real. It's not just pretend death. He was dead, dead, and they buried him. He died. He was buried. Number three, Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. Verse four, he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that little phrase, in accordance with the scriptures, it sends us back to the Old Testament and we say, where do we see hints of this? Where do we see previews of this? I think one place you see it is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that story, Abraham and his son Isaac? It had been a long time coming for Isaac to be born in the first place. This was the son of the promise, the son of the covenant. And the Lord says to Abraham one day, take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. I'm calling in the sin debt. Of this family. Just like I called it in in Egypt, now I'm going to call it in on Abraham, on his family. And Abraham has this dilemma. On the one hand, he knows God's promises are going to come through this child. He can't die. But he also knows what God has told him to do. It's clear and it's unmistakable. And so he sets off. And he travels a three day journey and they walk up Mount Moriah, this mountain that the Lord shows them. Isaac walking up that mountain, a dead man walking. The book of Hebrews gets inside Abraham's head, and the book of Hebrews says this Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. He knew. The promise has to come through this child, and if this child dies, God is going to keep his promise, so that must mean he's going to raise him from the dead. That was his mindset as he walked up this hill. If God's going to take him, God's going to give him back. And the author of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He walked up that mountain, a dead man walking, he walked down the mountain very much alive. Why? Why? Because the substitute died in his place. The Lord provided this. It was as if he came back from the dead, according to the author of Hebrews. If you don't like that illustration, maybe you could go to the book of Ezekiel. And you remember the the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet has a vision. In this vision, he looks out across a field, and in this field, all he sees are dead, dry, dusty skeletons, just a bunch of bones. And the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel replies back and he says, Lord, you know if they can live. I don't know, but you know. And as he says it, the Spirit of God, the the wind of God, the breath of God begins to blow over this valley and the bones start to rattle together and they start to form up into skeletons and they stand upright and there's sinew and there's tissue and there's muscle and there's all organs and there's skin and then the Spirit of God breathes into this army and they become a living army. You understand that not long after Ezekiel was on the scene, The same Spirit of God blew across a tomb in Judea, and the Son of God, who was dead and buried, can those bones live? They lived, because the same Spirit brought them back to life. Paul says, let me tell you about this faith that I've entrusted to you. I want to remind you of it. Jesus died. You get the blame, God gets the credit. It was for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. It was real death, as real as real can be. And he was raised, just as God promised through the scriptures. Last word in your outline is this, Jesus appeared. Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the 12. Verse 6, he appeared to 500 at one time. And Paul says, some of them are still alive. If you want to ask them about it, go talk to them. They'll tell you the same thing. They won't back off this story any more than I will. Verse seven, he appears to James, his brother, who was formerly a skeptic and an unbeliever. He appears to the apostles. Verse eight, he appears to the apostle Paul himself as he's traveling to persecute Christians. He appears. He really was alive. It wasn't just a dream, it wasn't just you had something funny for dinner and you had an odd vision during the middle of the night. This was multiple people on multiple occasions seeing, touching, listening to, and eating with Jesus, dead, buried, raised, and appeared. Paul says, this is the gospel I preached to you, and you received it. And then he throws in this warning. He says, I hope that you have not believed in vain. I hope when you accepted this story, it wasn't just a a spiritual going through the motions. I hope it wasn't just a, you know, filled out the card, raised your hand, walked the aisle, got baptized, did that sort of thing. I hope that you not only received this gospel, but that you are standing on it now. Because Paul knows if you stand on this gospel, it makes all of the difference in the world. This is not just some, some... Abnormality, some quirk of religion or spirituality that Christians particularly celebrate one time every year. This is life changing and it's death changing. And so the last thing that I want to share with you is this What difference does the resurrection make? Three simple ideas. The first is sin has lost its power. And death has lost its sting. Because Jesus died, was buried, was raised from the dead, and appeared, because those things are true, sin has lost its power and death has lost its sting. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a story about a lady I know, I knew. Her name was Janice Chisholm. She was a member of my church in Kentucky. She was there a long time before I was there. When I was the pastor of this church, that was 15 years ago, it seemed like she was 120 years old. I know she wasn't, but she just seemed like one of those ladies that had been around forever. She'd been a widow for decades. Her husband had passed away, and she'd been a faithful member of our church. And Towards the end of the time that we lived in Kentucky, I got a phone call from her. And the phone call, she shared with me the news that she'd been to the doctor, and they had diagnosed her with inoperable throat cancer. Never had smoked a cigarette or a cigar or a pipe or any of it in her entire life. And she gets this diagnosis, and I thought, man, what a, what a crushing thing. And so I, I need to go see this lady, I need to go visit this lady. And I did multiple times, initially and then... Uh, multiple times before we left. And i got to tell you, I have never in my life seen a human being face death with as much courage and resolve as Janice Chisholm. I tried to find a picture of her. I looked for her obituary online. They did not put a picture of her in her obituary. So I'll just describe her to you so that you can sort of have in mind what I have in mind. Just think like some old church directory, remember when we used to have church directories, and think about the old gray-haired, blue-haired widow in the picture, and you look at her and you think, she could break just sitting in that chair. I mean, she's prim and proper, and her hair is just right, and she looks delicate and fragile. And I'm telling you that I had multiple conversations with this woman where I walked away thinking, I have never in my life seen anyone face death quite like this. How do you explain that? You could say, well, she knew loss in her life. She lost her husband, so she was used to dealing with death, maybe. I don't know. You could say she was from an old school tough generation, and she was, right? She wasn't some millennial snowflake upset about everything and, you know, ruffled by all these different things. I mean, she was tough. There's no questioning that. But I asked her multiple times, how are you handling this? I don't mean how as in how do you feel. I mean, how are you actually handling this the way that you're handling it? What's your secret? And just about every time I asked her the question, she'd look in my eyes without thinking or hesitating, and she'd say, Jesus, it makes the difference. It changes the way that I live, and it changes the way that I die. Sin doesn't have any power over me. Death doesn't have any sting for me. What am I afraid of? Absolutely nothing. Look, this is real life stuff. This is the kind of stuff that on Easter Sunday when you turn on the news and you see that churches have been bombed on the other side of the world. We grieve for those people in those churches. We mourn the loss of life and the violence and the hate but we grieve as people who have hope. We don't grieve as people who have no hope. We don't grieve as people who don't understand what's happening or or don't understand the hope of the resurrection. Of all Sundays, the day that we would grieve with hope, this would be the Sunday. Death has lost its sting and sin has lost its power. Secondly, Christ will return and He will rule over all creation. He will return, and he'll rule over creation. Because he's alive, dead, buried, raised, and appeared, this is true, and it's certain. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 24. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, the Christ, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He will come back, and he will reign and rule over all. That includes you. When you read through 1 Corinthians 15, when you read passages like Philippians 2, let me just lay out for you what the Bible describes. It's very simple. It's very stark. On the last day when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That will be universal. But there will be some on that last day who make that confession not out of joy and worship, but under duress and under judgment as an enemy of God. It doesn't mean that you won't make the same confession in the end. It just means that you will make it as God's enemy. And Jesus will rule over you For all eternity as an enemy. Left to ourselves, that's all of us. That's what we deserve. But what Paul's describing here, this good news, this gospel news, is that because Jesus died and was buried and was raised and appeared, in the end, when Jesus is ruling and reigning over his enemies, it's almost too good to be true. You won't be under his boot You won't be the object of his wrath. You won't be his enemy. You'll be his child. You'll be invited up on the throne to rule and to reign with him. And the difference could not be more stark. And you can call it old school hellfire and brimstone preaching. You can call it trying to scare somebody. You can call it whatever you want to call it. That's what the Bible describes. Because he defeated sin and death, he died, he was buried, he rose, he appeared. He is coming back and he will rule over all. Of his enemies. Thirdly, lastly, believers, Christians, will be raised from the dead, never to die again. Raised from the dead, never to die again. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the foretaste of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. One of my favorite musicians is Johnny Cash. My family does not appreciate my love for Johnny Cash songs. When we get in the truck and it comes on the shuffle, I get outvoted Five to one for a pass on Johnny Cash. But if it's just me, I like to listen to Johnny Cash. Whatever you think about Johnny Cash, if you're with me, uh, the enlightened minority or my family, the ignorant majority, whatever you think about his music. At the end of his life, I think it's fair to say he was a broken down man. Physically, he was not well. Had a lot of different health issues, diabetes complicated many of those and caused many of those, so physically he was not well. Uh, On a spiritual level, he had lived a lot of years with a lot of the consequences of some of the decisions he had made in his life. And you know, and I know, and Cash knew that there can be grace and there can be forgiveness, but sometimes the consequences stick around, and you get to pick your sin, but you don't always get to pick your consequences. And so he had lived with some of those consequences. To make all of that worse, his wife, June, had died. And he loved her, and many doctors looked back on it and looked on him in the moment and said, this man has a broken heart. You've heard of people who who maybe die of a broken heart. And so you add all that together. At the end of his life, he was a broken down man, but he kept writing songs. He kept recording songs down to the end. And his voice in some of those last recordings is just incredibly weak and frail, but he sings with an understanding that maybe a younger man cannot have. One of the last songs that he wrote and recorded is a song called There Ain't No Grave. It's not very good English, but it's pretty good theology. And this is what it says. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. You understand, this is a man who knew the grave was close. The people he loved the most were dying. He was sick, and he knew it's not going to be long. He said, there ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound, I'm going to rise right out of the ground. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. That's not just the faith of an old busted down country singer. That's the faith of the Apostle Paul. That because Jesus died, was buried, was raised, and appeared, There is not a grave from Judea to Odessa, Texas, or anywhere in between that can hold you down. So you can wake up in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday and you can go to church and they can blow you up as you go to worship. Over 200 people lost their lives this morning. There is not a grave that can hold you if you're a follower of Jesus. You can go to Sunday school in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. You can be right next to Addie Mae Collins when the 22 sticks of dynamite go off. Your family can lose your grave where you're buried. We don't even know where you're at. It's okay because in the end, there is not a grave that can hold you. You can be like my friend Janice Chisholm. You can never smoke a day in your life. You can get inoperable throat cancer. They can send you home to die. And you can go home confident that in the end there is not a grave that can hold you down. You can be like Johnny Cash. You can have the the fame and you can come crashing down in so many ways in your personal life and you can uh, have a reputation and great hits and you can die in the end of diabetes and a broken heart and you can have confidence that in the midst of this suffering there is not a grave anywhere that will hold me because of what Jesus has done. You can be like the Apostle Paul, many of the other apostles who had the noose around their throat and the sword to their neck who died in horrible ways, refusing to back down off the story that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose, and Jesus appeared. And you can know that even if they kill you, it's okay. Because in the end, there is not a grave that can hold you. You can die comfortably, peacefully, under the care of hospice professionals, and you can just sort of take one last breath and slide off into eternity. And if that's how you go out, you can go out knowing, in the end, there is no grave that can hold you down. Jesus died. Jesus buried. Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to his followers changes the way you live, and it changes the way that you die.